trip back in time. I've got a video I want to show you. How many of you remember a guy named Paul Harvey? <laughs> Those of you who are younger, you're going, hmm? And uh, he was, uh, in his day, the most listened to radio commentator in America. Um, I think Rush Limbaugh has something like 600 radio stations that he's on, and he's the biggest now. Paul Harvey was on 1,200 radio stations back before, you know, a lot of the uh, things that we have now. Wasn't on satellite radio or the internet or anything like that. And uh, he had a unique style and a unique voice and uh, I remember even when I was a little kid, that he'd be on the radio or something for news. And there was something about him that caught my attention. Now, we're going to go way back, way back. This video is something that Paul Harvey recorded in 1965. This video is as old as Miss Sammy. It's the year she was born. Which means the audio doesn't work so well anymore. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you're that old, things don't always work. So I found one that has the, I started to say lyrics on it, the, the words that are on it, so that uh, everybody can understand it. It is uncanny. In 1965, he entitled this, If I Were the Devil. And he talks about what he would do. Now, I want you to pay particular, particular attention because everything he says is going on today. 1965, a long, long time ago. And yet the seeds of what is going on today were already bearing fruit back then. If I were the devil, if I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. The. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing, I'd have judges promoting pornography, Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. 
I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey. Good day. 1965, the good old days. Andy Griffith, Gomer Pyle, Lucy, all of that stuff that we are dealing with today was around back then. And if you go back and look and listen to some of the songs of those days, and even watch the really innocent TV shows and movies of those days, you find the seeds planted of what we are experiencing today. Am I right? I mean, you got to be honest. We romanticize the past, but the truth of the matter is what we are experiencing today is the fruit of 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Well, we didn't know about it. That's not necessarily good, is it? If you have mold growing in your house and you see it in your shower, what do you do? You clean it. But if the mold is growing in between the sheetrock, you don't know that it's there. It's more deadly, isn't it? If you have something happening in your body that you know about, that's one thing, but it's those hidden things that are slow and they rob you of your health and mobility and those types of things, that's where the danger really is. And we look back and we see that so many things were already happening and we just didn't know. And now it's become evident and we wonder what in the world are we going to do. And it's interesting to look and to listen to him talk about those things as if he had read this morning's newspaper. It's interesting to hear about him talk about those things that we might assume this is all new. This is current. This is for the new generation. This is a millennial thing. And then you find out a lot of the stuff that the millennials are wrestling with can be laid straight at the feet of baby boomers. We had our times, we had our rebellion, and we had our things, and we stepped across the line, and then we want to condemn them for doing the same things that we did, just because they do it to a higher extreme. Well, look in the mirror, look in the mirror, and take responsibility. This stuff has been going on for generations. And as I thought about it, looking at where we are in Titus chapter 2, I want to read this instruction that Paul is giving to the pastor of what God wants in his church. And I'm going to take the Paul Harvey approach to this. And I'm going to tell you how to weaken a church in one generation. Because if we know the plan, Titus knows the plan, Paul knows the plan, it's written for us in the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient, eternal Word of God, then the devil knows the plan. And it appears to me that what he has done is take the plan and then he starts attacking the different planks of this platform, if you please, that Paul has laid out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in this we find both the problem and we find the answer to what is going on in our culture today. So it's Titus chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1. And Paul says, writing to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise 
are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home or managing the home literally, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now show yourself, speaking to the preacher, in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants, those of you who work, are to be submissive to their own masters or employers in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Okay. Did you see anything in there that is different than the way most people live now? Did you see anything different in that than what you learn in our educational system? Did you see anything different in that than what you might see in a television program? Did you see anything different in that than what you might talk about over a Starbucks with a friend or a neighbor or a relative or something? Anything different? And there are people that would rant and rave and rail against what Paul said. It's oppressive, it's sexist, it's uh, the words of a misogynist, it's all of those kind of things would come up. And yet I would also say those same people that would fight against this are the same ones that in poll after poll after poll say that our society is going in the wrong direction. And what do we do in our society when we think we're going in the wrong direction? We put more coal to the train. We increase it. We start heading faster in that direction. It's interesting that we think maybe politics is the answer. Let me just say this. Whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, both of them are heading the same direction. One is going much faster than the other, but they're both headed the same way because there is no answer in politics. Politics can't save us. Our Father who art in Washington can't save us. This is what the church is called to do. And if I were wanting to have a strategy to weaken the church, I would do something like this. Number one, I would make preaching less doctrinal and doctrine less practical. Do you get that? Preaching less doctrinal. Well, doctrine divides. It is supposed to divide. That's how we know truth from error. That's how we know right from wrong. That's how we know the Bible from the words of men. That's how we know the holy from the demonic. That's how we know whether we're on the right track or not. Doctrine is simply teaching. It's not about denominations. It's not about any of that type of stuff. It's about the teaching of the Word of God. Jesus is the only way. That is a doctrine. John 14, 6. Jesus said it himself. We look at these things and we realize, well, if I believe that Jesus is the only way, that is naturally going to cause me some separation from people that believe that Buddha, Confucius, and Jesus are all kind of the same, much less Allah. And there is going to be a division, a separation. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. That's going to cause some separation from people who believe it's just a book of myths and fables and the works of men. It causes division, necessarily. Division is not always bad. It shows truth from, uh, from error. Sometimes it labels, doesn't it? Well, if I'm going to a medicine cabinet and I go, oh, I've got a cold, I don't really want to take your chemotherapy pills for that. 
You can't just go, well, all medicine, all medicine heals. No, some medicine kills if it's not applied properly and to the right situations. And the same thing is true of doctrine. There are labels that we have that tell other people what we believe, why we believe them, and we need to know those kind of things. Why? Because we are to preach, and the pastor is instructed by God through the Apostle Paul to preach the things that accord with sound doctrine. It's not my job to be a stand-up comedian. It's not my job to be a pop psychologist. It's not my job to be a motivational speaker. It's a job to teach the Word of God. And that's what every church ought to expect. And furthermore, that's what every church ought to demand. But if you want to weaken a church, take doctrine off the table. Everything's kind of the same. One is good as another. We're all just fellow, you know, strugglers going through all of this and it doesn't matter how we struggle, where we struggle or what we struggle with or what we try to remedy our struggles with. It's all the same. It's all the same. It doesn't really matter. And pretty soon you've got weak churches that don't know what they believe or why they believe them. When I look around and see some of the denominations now that have moved toward liberalism and I'm thinking a guy like John Wesley who was a Bible-believing Christian pastor, the founder of Methodism, must be spinning in his grave. When I look and I think about people that have led great movements, they must be wondering if they're aware of this from heaven. What in the world happened to my followers in a generation or two after I went to heaven. Because every preacher likes to think it's not built around me and it's not just about my influence or what I say. It's eternal truth that is going to live on. But when you look around and you see the great preachers of old and you wonder what in the world happened to their followers. Well, it's because the strategy here is very clear. Make preaching less doctrinal and doctrine less practical. In other words, I can live any way that I want if I don't know the doctrine of the Word of God. I don't know what it teaches. That's what a lot of people think. And then we also get this thing to where, well, if we are going to be doctrinal, let's make it rigid, institutional, and formal. There are lots of churches who gathered this morning and they recited the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or something like that, but it doesn't mean anything to them. They don't even know what it means, and they just say it, and they say the right things. I was at a funeral one time, and I had no idea what to do. Everybody else seemed to know what to do. Somebody gets up and reads something, and they say, this is the Word of God, and then everybody said something, and I, what'd they say, and what, what was going on? And they all did it. They had all these rituals, and then I'm standing up, they're kneeling, and I'm sitting down, they're standing up. It was so strange, and as I listened to it, it wasn't all wrong. Some of it was, but not all of it was. But I began to realize to most of the people in that building, it was nothing but a ritual. It was nothing but something that was said and left behind in the church house. It was a discussion for a Sunday school class. It was a discussion for things on Sunday morning, a homily or something like that. It wasn't anything to be taken home. It wasn't anything to shape your mind because preaching becomes less doctrinal and doctrine becomes less practical. Yeah, I believe that, but it doesn't have any effect on the way that I live. And Paul says, no, Titus, make sure that you preach what accords with sound doctrine. The next thing that would happen is you separate the generations. Notice how he mentions the word older in here, a word that kind of gets me in a little bit of trouble. Younger in here, a word sometimes that those of us who are older look down upon those who are younger. Well, they don't know anything and they haven't experienced anything yet. Well, have you forgotten that you were in their shoes? Have you forgotten how you were treated? Have you forgotten? Sometimes we brag about the way our parents disciplined us, but you hated it too. And we think about some of the things that we kind of uh, you know, we'll tag them with. You know, well, they're always on their phones. Hey, I was at Cracker Barrel the other day. You know who goes to Cracker Barrel? Old people. And you know what they were doing? 
I mean, it's addictive, isn't it? Well, we got to see that latest picture of the grandchild, and we got to see it now, don't we? Can't wait till later on. We used to mail pictures to our parents. Can you imagine having to wait for a picture? And then when you get it, you, you've got to carry it around in a photo album instead of on your phone to show people? I mean, times have changed. Hey, old people, if you're an old person, say amen. amen. Okay, you admitted it. If you had been raised in the millennial generation, would you be any different? I'd like to think I would be. Probably not. Probably not. And we forget the marvelous opportunity that we have to be able to help them, love them, shepherd them, and influence them for the things of God. You know, we look at them and we say, oh, this is the aimless generation, the generation that doesn't really know anything, the generation that is pulled in so many different directions and all of this kind of stuff. And you know what I say to that? Hey, wake up. What an opportunity we have. What an opportunity to tell them the truth. What an opportunity to show them something solid. What an opportunity to show them something real. But if all we're going to do is condemn and criticize, why should they listen to us? If all we're going to do is be a stick in the mud or a stick in the spokes, so to speak, then why should they listen to us? They're going to go on and they're going to chart their own way and they're going to do it with or without us. I'd rather they do it with us. I'd rather they find in the church a place where the generations can gather in love, in harmony. I'd rather they gather in a church where they feel welcomed and not shut out. I'd rather they gather in a church where they are heard where they are listened to. Because I think Dr. Al Mohler was right when he said, there are questions that younger generations ask that we're uncomfortable with about sexuality and sexual identity and those kind of things. And then he made this statement. He said, if they can't ask those questions in the church, they're going to ask them somewhere. And I would just throw out to you, where do you think they're going to ask and what kind of answers do you think they're going to get? And so many times in the church we're so sanitized and sterile on all of these kind of things that they're not really getting the answers because we're afraid or embarrassed. And you kind of should be embarrassed. There's nothing wrong with that. But you need to be frank and you need to be honest and you need to be giving input. And there are some people that the way we answer their questions... They make up their mind. I'm not asking you anymore. Not asking you anymore. And the truth of the matter is, for some of those questions, they're the same ones we asked. And we were rebuffed by the older generation. And so sex becomes something dirty. It becomes something that's supposed to be hidden. It's awkward. It's embarrassing. And so we quit talking about it, but the world sure didn't. And look at the result. Look at the fruit and look at what has happened because of that. You want to destroy the influence of the church? You're not going to destroy the church because Jesus promised that, but you sure can weaken it. Let's take the generations and let's separate them. Let's have old people church. And we sing with our organs and our pianos and our hymns and we feel really, really good about it. But no young people come. But that's okay because old people have all the money. I look at some of these preachers and I go, you're dumb if all you're doing is reaching after young people. They're broke. Go for the old people. They're rich. Right? Are we supposed to have just young people church? Where everything's cool and vibrant and loud and flashy, speaking their language and all of that. Where is God in all of this kind of stuff? Because I don't see him in either one. Because when I read Titus chapter 2, it says older men are to teach younger men and older women are to teach younger women. And so many times it's not just the young people who don't want to hear. It's the old people who don't want to mess with the young people. And I look at that and I go, no wonder, no wonder. Because this ought to be a place where if somebody who is younger comes in from a broken home, they find a spiritual mama and daddy here 
who'll take interest in them and adopt them, so to speak. It ought to be that when somebody comes in to a church and they've been messed up and abused by a dysfunctional family, they come in here and they're absolutely amazed at how functional the family of God is and how many people would take time to love them like David did Mephibosheth. So it ought to be a place like that. Welcome. Be loved. We're here to help you. We're not here just to point out all of your wrongs. We're here to show you what is right. I don't want to go to the doctor and just hear what's wrong with me. I want to know how I get this fixed, how I get things straightened out, how I get things back on track. Is there any hope? And a lot of people are coming into the church and they're wondering, is there any hope? Does anything work anymore? Is anything solid? Does anything make sense anymore? And they've been told so many things that they don't know what to believe. Oh, may God grant that when they come in here, if they're young, they find not only peers that will befriend them, but older people who will pray for them, take an interest in them, disciple them, and help them and spend time with them. Be the mom or dad they never had. Be the grandparent they never had. Be the aunt and uncle that they never had. Be the older brother or sister that they never had. And if we don't intentionally set our minds on that, it won't happen because there is a natural separation between the generations that Christ is calling us to bridge the gap and to overcome that. We're either going to put up walls or we're going to put up bridges. I want to put up some bridges. And I want to see how we can help and how we can minister and how we can overcome. Thirdly, notice this. If you want to weaken a church in a generation, then confuse gender roles. Notice here that Paul, I mean, the obvious thing in our culture is, he said men, he said women, like there's only two. Right? Well, that's because there's only two. This past week, there was, uh, I can't remember what hospital it was now, senior moment. Uh, There was a man in the hospital, a male, scheduled for a hysterectomy. Hmm. Somebody's monkeying with gender there, aren't they? We're hearing about men having menstrual cycles, men being pregnant. What in the world is going on? You talk about confusion. Can I just remind you, God is not the author of confusion. Yeah, yeah. He made it really simple, and he made it to where it works. Made it to where it works. But let's back up a little bit. Because Titus chapter 2 is pretty clear about some things. There's supposed to be families raised in the context of a loving father and loving mother who are married in a covenant relationship raising their children. Now before we get on to the LGBT community, we've got to take a look in the mirror and realize Christians started monkeying with God's plan 50 years ago, didn't we? And we started tolerating things and accepting things that were just as perverse and just as wicked as anything that we see coming on now. You see, when they start telling us things like the church, people in the church have as high, or some polls say, a higher divorce rate than in the world, something's not right about that. Now, I think the polling is kind of skewed on some of that. Because uh, when they say that about 50% of marriages end in divorce, that's not exactly right. Because first-time marriages, it's more like uh, uh, 40% or 30% end in divorce. Second marriages, it's much higher. And third marriages, it's uh, much higher than that. And so sometimes that kind of skews what people think and what the, the polls are saying. But it also makes me think of something else, too. You see, uh, in the world, there are a lot of people, maybe their divorce rate is lower because they, they don't even bother to get married. And maybe in places, you know, we've always had a high divorce rate in Oklahoma. Uh, we used to be up number one, and now I think we're number four or something like that. So, yay, we're making progress. Maybe that's just because in the Bible Belt, people don't live together as much as they do in other parts of the country without marriage. 
And so it's naturally going to make things look a little bit different. But have you noticed in our own culture, in our own state, in our own city, and in our own families, how it's more and more and more prevalent for people just to move in together. And marriage is just kind of set aside or done away with. See, this is us we're talking about. That the seeds of all we see, the radical stuff that we see in the world, we have to look back and say, well, maybe we were tinkering with it first, and the fruit of what we see today started with us 40, 50, 60 years ago. And that's what I would do. I would make it to where fathers are no longer the authority in their home. I would make it to where mothers just bristle at the thought of any kind of submission because that's what Paul said. That's what God said. And I would make sure that uh, a man saying, I'm the head of my household, becomes aloof and abusive and reckless, hypocritical, so that when people look at all of that and they think about verses like this, they don't see a loving, caring, shepherding father leading and guiding and influencing the family the wrong way, they would see a tyrant and a monster. And I would make it to where that when anybody read this, all they saw was oppression and hurt and abuse. And I'm going to just go ahead and say it. If you are an abusive, tyrannical, or absentee father, you are not the head of your household. In fact, much the opposite. And you are perverting God's plan for marriage in the family. And the same thing is true when you find women that, that say that uh, I don't really need this man. And I'm more capable than he is. And you violate what God has said in here. When the things get out of order, the pieces of the puzzle don't fit together right. And it just doesn't look right. I mean, sometimes you can take a puzzle and put it together and you say, I want this piece to go here. And you can take a hammer and smash it into there, but it's never going to fit right and it's never going to look right. And when are we going to understand that God knows what he's talking about in the roles of gender, even within the family unit? And we've got to be careful that we don't mess with those kind of things because of our experience or because of what we've heard or because of what society says or our emotions tell us because those things are going to be wrong. And what we need to do is say there has been a lot of problems. There have been a lot of abuses. There have been a lot of things where these are taken out of, of the right uh, context and order. Men are to lead their families by loving their wife as Christ loved the church. And there is no abuse in that whatsoever. And women are to give respect to their husbands and not say, well, when you earn it, I'll give it to you. Because men are motivated by the prospect of honor and respect. And when these two things are together, when the woman feels secure in her husband's love and the man feels respected and honored by his wife, then you're going to see the magic happen. It's the way we were created. It's in our DNA. And the code in your DNA was not written by you or anyone else. It was written and put there by God. And men are men and women are women. And God knows what he is doing because he is the one who has created us all. But you mess all of that kind of stuff up and you've got confused children. You've got a messed up society. And you end up with all of the stuff that we are ending up with today. Let's get back to the Bible. And let's go back in faith to say, God, you know what's right and you know what you're doing. And I want to be submissive to that. But we're paying the price. We've sown the wind and we're reaping the whirlwind now. Number four, I would disrupt and redefine the family. Paul uses family terms in here. And now we're kind of saying in our culture that Anybody and anyone, anytime, anywhere can be a family, adopt children, live together, do all of these kind of things. And they demand to have family rights, whether they are a family or not. Well, we've got to get back and say, if the world can't define the family, then who's going to do it? And we've got to be able to do that and to say, this is what is best this is what works best for children. This is what makes a society function and even to make a church function. 
And if we look at all of that and say, oh, we can play with it, monkey around with it. It can be anything we decide for it to be because we want to be happy. Well, let the world go their way. Let the world go their way. And I promise you, if you do things God's ways, your family is going to stand out like light in the darkness. And there are going to be people that come to you and say, how do you make your marriage work? How do you make relationships with your children work? How is it that things are functioning for you because you're doing things God's way? In other words, I see this as a tremendous opportunity, not to defeat us, but for us to shine as lights in the darkness. If only, if only we would do things God's way. When the Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus, he took them back to the book of Genesis and he said, let's look at things from the very beginning. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and therefore they shall no longer be two but one flesh. And then he goes on to say, and what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And so we find there the covenant between a man and a woman to live together in marriage and not to divorce, not to let man pull them apart. No affairs, none of this kind of stuff, no pornography, none of the outside interests that tear them away from the home and the family, but to relate to one another, to raise their children together in a covenant relationship and to set a pattern to set a pattern for the future. This is the way that things work. And so if I were the devil working to weaken the church, I would redefine the family. And I would make it to where it's so confusing that not even the people in the church can really say anything. Or if they do know, now listen carefully, they're afraid to speak up because you're intolerant, you're bigoted, you're judgmental, you're condemning. Well, we don't want to be any of those things. But the Bible does say we are in all things to speak the truth in what? In love. How are we doing? How are we doing? So, number five would be this. I would discredit church leaders and preachers. Show yourself to be, in all respects, a model of good works in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. And he goes on with all of that to say that an opponent won't have anything evil to say about the preacher. And therefore he won't have anything evil to say about the church. Now that's a tall order for imperfect people. But have you noticed? Have you noticed how many times you hear singers, Christian comedians... Pastors, other people that are facing open shame and disgrace. And when they're found out, when they're exposed, it doesn't just hurt them and their career and their standing. All of a sudden, all of us are kind of put into a bad light, aren't we? When we were in Albany, one of the things we were doing was working at a camp with some disabled children and their parents and those kind of things. And uh, Miss Susan asked the pastor up there, why don't you do some of these things on the church campus and on the church property? And you know what Sean said? He said, with all of the scandals about churches, particularly Roman Catholic churches, which are predominant up there, he said, people in the Northeast don't think of a place to take, uh, the church as a place to take their children. They think of church as a place where children are abused. You think that's not a black eye on all of us? You think that doesn't hinder some of the works that are going on? Now the Houston Chronicle has identified about 650 Southern Baptist pastors who have been involved in sexual and homosexual scandals and that some of them, they said, are even registered sex offenders. Now, to be fair, maybe some of those, and maybe all, I don't know, maybe that happened before they were saved, 
And now they've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. They're different. They're new creatures in Christ and all of that. But I still think that would fall under the requirement to be blameless, don't you? And how do you do that and have a nursery in your church? How do you do that and have a children's ministry or a student ministry for youth in your church? How do you do that? And so we find that all of this kind of stuff gives us a black eye and it causes everybody to kind of be suspect about anybody who would ever preach, anybody who would ever sing, anybody who would ever take a stand for Christ, and that would include you. And I would say the enemy's done a good job, and we've been weakened in all of these areas because we have violated these things. And then the last thing would be this. How about corrupt a believer's testimony at work? Make it to where you're a different person at work than you are in the church. Make it to where at work you're known as being lazy or rude or somebody who likes to pick a fight or somebody who can tell a dirty joke or somebody who's drunk when they come to work after uh, lunch or those kind of things. Things that we would never think about in here and never see. But you're corrupted at work and then we wonder why we're not conquering our world for Christ. Why we are not having a greater influence. Why we're not salt or light. It's because we're living a duplicitous lifestyle. All of these things are addressed here in this early church on Crete. When Paul writes to Titus and he tells us here that we are to be well pleasing. Not argumentative. Not pilfering. But showing all good faith, even on the job. Now, I say all that, and I say, if I were the devil, I would just keep on doing what he's been doing. So far, it's been successful. But I would call on you, and I would call on us to wake up and say, we've got some work to do, we've got some teaching to do, and we've got some commitments that need to be made. Because the good news is that if we don't shy away from sound doctrine, if we can integrate the generations, if we can celebrate, celebrate gender roles and um, uh, the functions, we have equal, equal worth in our creativity um, between men and women, but we do have different functions. If we can affirm and build up the biblical family, and if we can magnify the Lord and His Word over human leaders, quit making Christian celebrities, by the way, and if we could make every part of life a mission assignment at work, then something would happen. Before too long, you guys are going to be putting up uh, Christmas trees. You know, one of the things I've noticed is nobody just puts up an evergreen tree and says, there it goes. You know what they always do? They decorate the tree. Well, does that mean there's something wrong with the tree? No, the tree's pretty. We love, we love those kind of trees. But there's something about it that we put the decorations on. And the decorations, we don't just set a box of decorations in the corner and say, that's Christmas. We put them on the tree. And we arrange them and we make them look nice. Your life, your life. Your life is a decoration on the tree of Christ. You either adorn it or you disgrace it. You are either a cause for praise and joy and honor and glory or your cause for people to spit in the face of Jesus again. So Titus is telling us here, watch these things because these are the things that are going to weaken us, destroy our credibility and our witness and our influence. And the salt has become good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And boy, are we ever getting trampled in so many areas. And we can't take up the world's agenda and the world's cause because that just sows seeds of even more confusion. What we need to do is lay down our swords and take up the cross. Follow after Jesus in self-sacrificing love. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then have the audacity to live what we say we believe and sing about. And take the name of Jesus with you everywhere you go. And then you adorn the Lord and Savior. You adorn the doctrines of our Lord. Because you're like an ornament that's put on the tree instead of something that brings disgrace. Hey, there's been enough of that. You know the good news? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to not only forgive us, 
but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he can take in you the scars and the marks of disgrace and shame and embarrassment. And he can make it into an ornament to say, see what I can do with a flawed person. See what I can do with a sinner. See what I can do with an addict. See what I can do with a gossip. See what I can do with an adulterer. See what I can do. And all over the tree we see nothing but beauty, 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 and things that other people can identify with. But we don't get together and say, let's just be miserable together and talk about what failures we are. They look and they see victory and success because the victory that we have is in Jesus Christ our conqueror, our king and our deliverer who has given us his life to overcome all of these things when are we going to wise up and do things his way can anybody say amen to that when are we going to wise up doesn't matter what you've done before this is not an all or nothing well you're out no, you can start today you can start today and do things the way God, the way God has put them together. And that ought to be our confession. So I'm going to ask you to do something today. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. And I'm going to ask those of you who uh, help us during our invitation time to go on back and take your places in the back of the auditorium. And I would just say this as they go back. If you want to be saved today... If you want to be saved, go back there and talk to one of them. You can pick out any one of them. And you can talk to them about salvation and they'll show you what Jesus says about salvation. The gospel, they'll tell you, of Jesus Christ is death, burial, and resurrection for your sins. If you've got questions about church membership, you can go back and talk to them about it. If you just need a friend to pray with you, they'll do that. But I'm going to ask this for those of you who are members of Graceway. If you're a guest, please excuse us. If what I said today is what you believe and what you affirm out of Titus chapter 2 and as imperfect as we all are, you heard that, didn't you? As imperfect as we all are in so many ways, would you just come to the altar and say, this is what I want my life and our church to be, a Titus chapter 2 church we saw in the introduction what God wants we saw in the part about the elders who's supposed to be leading we saw why they are supposed to be leading last week now we're coming together to say oh Lord I want to be this intergenerational family oriented standing up for truth church that has a true impact everywhere we go it's not going to be easy it's going to take some work but it starts with a commitment I'm going to ask you to join me here at the altar and let's just come up and say, oh Lord, whatever anybody else does, whatever this society does, whatever other churches do, we want to be different. We want to be founded on the Word of God. For the glory of God, for the well-being of our children and our grandchildren, for the sake of this rock, rotten and wicked culture, this is what we want to do what we want to be. And look at this. See people of different generations, different genders, different races standing together. Because this is what heaven is going to be like, isn't it? This is what heaven's going to be like. Let's just come together and let's just confess our sins. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, confess the sins of the church, confess your own personal sin, sins of your family, sins of generations that have robbed you and stolen from you. faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you may need to forgive one another you may need to forgive someone of a different generation oh father you told Israel That if they would humble themselves and pray and confess their sins and turn from their wicked way, that you would hear from heaven. You would cleanse them and you would even heal their land. Father, I don't see any reason in the Bible why you wouldn't do that with a bunch of Gentiles thousands of years later. We humbly turn to you confessing our sins. 
We've messed with and monkeyed with things that you've called sacred, that you have put together. Now we come here together scarred, bruised, battered, hurting, flawed. And we come before you, Lord, saying, can you make us new and give us another chance? Can you cleanse us? Can you forgive us? And would you restore the years the locusts have eaten? Would you bring beauty out of ashes? Father, would you make us to where on the tree of Christ and his doctrine, we are like ornaments that people look to and they can see themselves, but they don't just see our scars and our flaws and say, oh, there's somebody else who's a mutual mess up. May they see your redemption, your grace, your mercy, and how you are a God who really does restore and make all things new. Father, would you make us to where we can be bold without being condemning? Would you make us to where we can be clear without being contentious? Would you make it, Father, to where what we have to say is attractive to other people who are in turmoil and confused? So that we can not only give them good advice, we can tell them about the one who made us, the one who died for us. The one who rose from the dead. The one who forgives and the one who saves. And would you make us crusaders for truth. For a world that is lost, dying, and so very confused. Let us be a bright spot in the midst of the darkness. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let our light shine before men so that others will see our good works and they will glorify our Father which is in heaven. And oh, above all, would you allow us to rescue our children and our grandchildren from a corrupt world. And we pray this because we believe it to be your will. In Jesus' name we pray. And let the church say amen. Amen, amen. Thank you so very much and uh, may the lord bless you brother dale you need to say a few words a couple of things as we get closer to christmas adult choir rehearsal at four o'clock we need to be there children's choir at 5 30. remember tomorrow's a mission 405 food pantry day we need you there to help us and go by the information center out in the foyer look at the activities that are going on sign up get involved okay we'll see you back tonight 5 30. Ecclesiastes, you are dismissed. <laughs>